I want you to try and imagine measuring the distance from Dubbo to Wellington, say, with a set of kitchen scales. I want you to imagine uh, measuring out the ingredients of a cake recipe with a police speed camera. It's silly, isn't it? They're silly sort of things to think about because the thing being measured doesn't line up with the thing that is doing the measuring. Uh, you need to use the right measuring device. You need to have the right measuring standard. Now, friends, in a very real way, that is the lesson that Paul has been drumming away at the Corinthians ever since chapter 12 because the Corinthians are being a bit silly and they're trying to measure how spiritual they are, but they've been using the wrong measuring device. They've been trying to measure how spiritual they are by what gifts they have. And for two chapters, Paul's been saying, no, 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 being spiritual is not about what gift you have. Being spiritual is about how you use your gift. And in particular, last week, he pointed out that being spiritual is all about doing things in love, which is basically how he starts today's section where he mentions the way of love in verse 1. Look down at verse 1 with me. Follow the way of love and eagerly desire spirituals. Now you would have noticed again that I didn't read gifts into that verse because it's simply not there. Unfortunately, again, this is not a great translation. As I mentioned a couple of weeks back, the Apostle Paul never uses the term spiritual gifts in the letter whatsoever. And so whenever you see spiritual gifts in your Bible, uh, in 1 Corinthians, like here or down in verse 12 again of today's passage, put a line through it and put a question mark in the margin. Paul persistently refuses to put the two words, spiritual and gift, together because he wants to avoid at all costs this idea that somehow how spiritual you are is related to what gifts you have. And so, for example, here in verse 1, even though the NIV puts the word gift twice into that verse, it is not there at all, not even once. But the best translation that's going around is the New American Standard, which still puts one use of gift in, but at least they put it in inverted commas to highlight that it's not in the original. A stricter translation is the more vague statement, pursue the way of love and seek spirituals. In other words, pursue the way of love as you seek after spiritual things. Pursue the way of love as you seek to be spiritual. Which is pretty much what he's been saying so far for the last two chapters. That true spirituality is not measured by giftedness, it's reflected by love. So pursue the way of love if you want to be spiritual. And as he goes on to say in that verse, especially that you may prophesy. Now, this mention of prophecy now leads us into a prolonged discussion where Paul applies the way of love to the activities of prophecy and speaking in tongues. Now, why does he pick on those two things? Not really sure. Maybe the Corinthians are especially hung up about those sorts of things. Remember that they are mistakenly thinking that certain gifts make you more spiritual. So maybe the church are having a barney over whether or not you're more spiritual to speak in tongues or prophecy. Well, whatever the case, Paul now picks on those two activities and he wants to use them almost as a case study to explain 
how the way of love works. And he wants to explain how the way of love affects the way they should be thinking about those two activities. And his short answer is, the way of love prefers prophecy over speaking in tongues. Why? Well, in order to see why, we firstly need to take a couple of minutes to think about what each of these two activities actually are. We've got to be a little bit careful and we need to make sure we're all on the same page here. Because nowadays, just because there are churches around who have what they call speaking in tongues and prophecy in them, that does not necessarily mean that that's what Paul is referring to here. Just remember, lots of people call what lots of people call the Lord's Supper nowadays is very different to what Paul referred to as the Lord's Supper back in chapter 11. So for a few brief moments, just for the sake of us being all on the same page, what exactly can we tell from this chapter and the surrounding ones about what speaking in tongues and prophecy are? Speaking in tongues first. Well, it's a form of prayer. Verse 2, Paul describes it as being directed to God, not people. It's praying. Furthermore, verses like verse 19 indicate that speaking in tongues is a prayer in a language that's not understood by other people. And verse 14 indicates that the language used in the prayer may not even be intelligible to the person doing the praying. Verse 14 talks about praying in a tongue as unfruitful for the per- uh, sorry as fruitful for the person's spirit but unfruitful for their mind. Seems as if speaking in tongues is praying in a language not understood by the others around and perhaps not even understood by the person doing the praying. Now, is the language used in the prayer another human language or is it some other non-human sort of language? Well, Acts chapter 2, uh, uh, where at Pentecost, uh, speaking in tongues there was definitely other human languages, but it doesn't sound like that necessarily has to be the case. Last week in chapter 13, verse 1, Paul wrote, If I speak in the tongues of men and of angels, but have not love, I'm only a resounding God. So it sounds like the language could either be a human language, you know, like French or Chinese or whatever it is, or possibly maybe even an angelic sort of heavenly language. At one level, it doesn't really matter. The main point, at least in this chapter, is that speaking in tongues is a prayer that is not understood language-wise by the others in the room and possibly not even by the person doing the praying themselves. So if that's the case, what's the point of the activity? Well, Paul says in verse 4 that it edifies the person praying. This is a good gift that builds up the person praying. It encourages them. It perhaps refreshes the person praying. Different people across DPC pray in tongues. And they testify that they are certainly encouraged when that happens. Now, if that's speaking in tongues, what about prophecy? This one's a little trickier because when most people think of prophecy, you know, they think of Nostradamus and they think of some, someone predicting something, uh, you know, God telling pers- a person something about a future event that's going to happen. In the Bible, prophecy is much, much broader than that. In the Bible, prophecy is basically someone who declares and applies a revelation from God and sometimes it's in a predictive way, but not necessarily. 
Even in the Old Testament, a lot of what the Old Testament prophets actually said wasn't predicting anything at all. Much of what they did was remind Israel of what God had already said. Prophecy in the Bible, at its heart, is declaring and applying a revelation from God. And in that sense, um, there does seem to be a bit of overlap in the Bible between preaching and teaching and prophecy. They all deal with passing on and applying a revelation from God. What is particularly striking in the New Testament, however, is that the authority of prophecy in the New Testament is very much watered down and reduced compared to the Old Testament. For example, in Acts chapter 21, prophets tell Paul not to go to Jerusalem. He has a think about it and he goes anyway. And there's no hint in the text that he's disobeyed or done anything wrong by doing that. As we'll see next week in the second half of this chapter, when prophecy does occur in a church, it is to be weighed up. People are to sit around and assess it with the word of God. Interestingly, in writing to Timothy, Paul says there that women should not teach or have authority over a man. But... In chapter 11 of 1 Corinthians, women are freely able to prophesy. Very clearly, New Testament prophecy carries less authority than teaching. And maybe for that reason, in 1 Thessalonians 5, Paul actually has to tell the Thessalonian church to not treat prophecies with contempt. New Testament prophecy would seem to be the passing on of a revelation from God, but in such a way and in such a manner that it carries less authority than teaching and much, much, much less authority than Old Testament prophecy. And here's what's really interesting. Despite that very much watered-down, cut-back, diminished authority of New Testament prophecy, despite all of those qualifications... Paul here nevertheless says that in terms of the way of love, prophecy has it all over speaking in tongues. The reasons he give are because of their effects on both believers and unbelievers. Look firstly what he says about the effects of tongues and prophecy on, um, on believers. Sorry, verse two. If anyone who speaks in the tongue does not sorry for anyone who speaks in the tongue does not speak to men but to God. Indeed, no one understands him. He utters mysteries with his spirit. But everyone who prophesies speaks to men for their strengthening, encouragement and comfort. The point is clear enough. Tongues are spoken to God. Remember, they're a prayer, not to others in the church, whereas prophecy is spoken to others in the church. Tongues, therefore, they may build up the speaker, the prayer, as we've heard, but no one else. Prophecy builds up everyone. Verse 4. He who speaks in the tongue edifies himself, but he who prophesies edifies the church. I would like every one of you to speak in tongues, but I'd rather have you prophesy. He who prophesies is greater than he who speaks in tongues, unless he interprets, so that the church may be edified. You see the point? Prophecy is to be preferred because it's more about other people, which, remember, follows better the way of love, which is what we discovered last week in chapter 13. Love is about unselfishly helping others. He presses the point in verse 6 because it's not only who is being spoken to but it's, it's what is actually being spoken because one involves intelligible speech, the other doesn't. Verse 6. 
Now, brothers, if I come to you and speak in tongues, what good will I be to you unless I bring you some revelation or knowledge or prophecy or word of instruction? Even in the case of lifeless things that make sounds, such as a flute or a harp, how will anyone know what the tune is being played unless there's a distinction in the note? Again, if the trumpet doesn't sound a clear call, who will get ready for battle? So it is with you, unless you speak in intelligible words with your tongue, how will anyone know what you're saying? Again, it's a pretty simple point. How can you build up anyone else if they don't understand what you're saying? It's like watching a foreign movie on SBS without English subtitles on. It's really hard to figure out what's going on. You can miss the entire storyline. And likewise, Paul's point here is what's the use of speaking in tongues in church? Unless they're interpreted, no one will know what's being prayed. No one's mind will be engaged. No one will be helped and therefore no one will be built up. And so in verse 18, he actually makes a very bold statement. I thank God that I speak in tongues more than any of you, all of you. But in the church, I would rather speak five intelligible words to instruct others than 10,000 words in a tongue. Now, I worked out that when I preach, I speak at about 150 words a minute. So for me to speak 10,000 words in a tongue would take a bit over an hour. And Paul is saying here that for me to speak in tongues for over an hour is not as good as me simply saying five intelligible words. Follow the way of love. That sentence is preferable to over an hour of tongue speaking. Let us be very clear about this, friends. Some churches, hey, some whole denominations have been founded and promoted on the fact that they have speaking in tongues at their meetings. Some churches declare it as a sign of their spirituality and their spirit-filledness that they have lots of speaking in tongues at their meetings. Paul says you can have a five-word sermon and still be more spiritual than a church in which you've got over an hour of speaking in tongues. Because the way of love is not about getting together to experience a personal spiritual high, the way of love is to do what builds up the church. The way of love is to do what edifies others and not ourselves. Mind you, we need to keep a balance here. Let's not get too negative about tongues either. In verse 18, Paul loves the fact that he speaks in tongues more than anyone else. In verse 5, he says that he wishes everyone could speak in tongues. And so, don't forget, this is a good gift. And maybe for your own strengthening and edification and encouragement, maybe speaking in tongues is a gift that you should ask God for. Especially if you're doing it tough, feeling beleaguered, weighed down in your spiritual life. It's a good and valid gift from God. Paul is not down on it. But what is very clear is that when a church gets together, the way of love is such that speaking in tongues has very, very limited use. We'll see that again next week. But he goes on here because speaking in tongues in church can actually have a disastrous effect on people, he goes on to say, especially to any unbelievers who might be present. Look with me at verse 21. In the law, it is written, through men of strange tongues and through the lips of foreigners, I will speak to this people, 
but even then they will not listen to me, says the Lord. Now, brains in gear a little bit. This is quite an interesting quote from the Old Testament. It comes from Isaiah, and he's quoting from a passage in Isaiah which describe how God is going to use the foreign enemies of unbelieving Israel at the time to come through and inflict judgment, the judgment of God on them. In other words, he's quoting from a spot in the Old Testament where unbelieving Israel hear strange tongues, but it's in terms of judgment because it's their enemies coming to defeat them. And Paul is reminding that, reminding the Corinthians of that here so as to make the point that far from being a good thing, when unbelieving Israelites heard strange tongues... More often than not, that's a bad thing. And so he says in verse 22, tongues then are a sign not for believers, but for unbelievers. And by that he means they're a negative sign. Strange tongues are a sign of God's judgment. However, he goes on to say in the second half of the verse, prophecy, however, it's for believers, not for unbelievers. Now, a bit tricky, that second half, because he's making a contrast there. Whereas tongues were a bad negative sign for unbelievers, he's now going to flip it and say prophecies, on the other hand, are a good sign for believers. It's a little confusing, but he spells it out and it gets a bit more clear because he gives an illustration. Verse 23. So if the whole church comes together and everyone speaks in tongues and some do not understand or some unbelievers come in, will they not say that you are out of your mind? But if an unbeliever or someone who does not understand comes in while everyone is prophesying, he will be convinced by all that he's a sinner and be judged by all and the secrets of his heart will be laid bare. So he'll fall down and worship God, exclaiming, God is really among you. Now you get the point? If an unbeliever comes into a church meeting where tongues are happening and they hear all this sort of strange, weird noise, they'll just think that the church is a bunch of weirdos and they'll walk out. And as such, tongues will have a negative effect, which is the point of the quote from Isaiah. But if they hear prophecy, if they hear intelligible speech, they will be convicted and saved, which will be a terrifically positive sign for the believers, because that will be a sign in verse 25 that God really is amongst them. And so once more, in terms of what is edifying, for both believers and unbelievers, really, in terms of the way of love, he who prophesies is greater than he who speaks in tongues. Which, in a nutshell, is what this section is all about. He who prophesies is greater than he who speaks in tongues. When you apply the way of love to those activities. Because the way of love is to pursue those things that build others up. The way of love is to pursue those things which most edify others. And friends, that is a take-home lesson that reaches way beyond just the specific activities of prophecy and speaking in tongues. Here is a message that helps us to see precisely how you and I or to apply the way of love. The way of love means that we do what best builds up early church. The way of love is that we do what is best at edifying the other people in this room. And even though it's a section which you know, has a lot to say about tongues and prophecy, it's actually a lot broader than that. 
at, at that other level. This is giving us a very practical, this is giving us a very helpful tool to assess everything we do when we get together. Is this an edifying activity? That is the simple question we always apply. Is this doing what is most helpful for building the others up in this room? In deciding who you're going to talk to and what you're going to talk to them about over morning tea, what will be the most edifying thing for the other person? In choosing when it is that you're actually going to go home this morning, in figuring out whether you're actually going to notice whether or not something needs cleaning up or straightening up before you go home, in managing your children while you're here, in getting enough rest so as to not fall asleep while you're here, in thinking through whether you're going to walk to your car on your own or are you going to wait and walk out to your car along with someone else so you have a chance to chat. Do you want to be a spiritual Christian? Well, do the thing that best edifies the others in the room. In deciding whether you're going to go to growth group this week, in deciding when you're actually going to arrive at the group, when you get there, deciding where you're going to sit, during the conversation and the Bible study, in weighing up the different ideas, in deciding when to speak and when to be silent, when to be funny, when to be serious, in controlling the tone of what you say, in assessing priorities and activities and invitations. You want to be a spiritual Christian? Do what is best for building others up. Because that's what being part of the Church of Christ is all about. We don't come here to bludge. We come here to build. You know on those big construction sites, you know often they can have the sort of border, the perimeter, the, the fence line all boarded up and, and uh, covered over. But every now and then there's a hole in the wall, you know, where you can go and poke your head in and have a look at the construction. And you can see all these different builders all doing their different things on the building site. Now friends, if a passerby was to walk past and just out of interest they were to stick their head in the back doors and see what was going on here, they ought to be watching a construction site. Not a construction site with bricks and cement, of course, not that sort of, but, but a spiritual construction site should be going on when we get together. For we are here as builders. We are here to build each other up. Well, that's what we're here for if we're at least trying to be spiritual. Because that's the way of love. I'll pray. Father, help us to, uh, to love each other well and to seek those things that best edify and build up each other. Father, help us to do that. Help us to be, by your word and spirit, help us to have that on our consciousness as we speak to one another, as we deal with one another, um, as we try to catch up with one another. Father, we pray that you would help us to be the church family that you've called us to be. 
Help us to be good at um, building each other up because we want to thank you for the rich privilege that it is to be your temple, your building, your people. Amen.